in the footsteps in the footsteps of the servant king the chosen of God's chosen one this is the word of the lord Good morning, everyone. It's, it's a great joy to uh, be with you this morning and to uh, catch up with so many of you whose paths have crossed mine over the years. So I'm glad Tim invited me to be with you this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word now, understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice. For we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the exclamation of John the Baptizer as Jesus approached and as recorded in our Gospel reading for this morning. If ever words picture God's grace, these words certainly do. On the 1st of January this year, it was exactly 250 years since John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, was first sung in a parish church. On Friday the 1st of January, 1773, the congregation of St Peter and St Paul Olney, 95 kilometres away from London, first heard those words which we uh, know so well and have come to love. Some of you may have seen the article in uh, last weekend's um, <clears throat> Weekend Australia. And this, <clears throat> excuse me, this article highlighted uh, John Newton's uh, work and others in the abolition of slavery, slave trading. Now, Newton himself knew God's grace in turning his life around, and so with gratitude in his heart, <clears throat> he worked in turn to turn other lives around by pointing them to Jesus and his grace. And as a result, he penned those uh, words those, that, of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, the words of which focus on the person and work of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, about a year ago, <coughs> my, <coughs> my wife, Remor, I think I'm going to have to... Uh, I assure you that this is only water. <laughs> About a year ago, my wife, Remore, and I responded to a cry for help uh, from a long-time friend and his wife. They own a property uh, out of Robertstown, about 130 kilometres from Adelaide. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, our friend uh, was recovering uh, from an accident. And his lambs needed to be castrated. A very important job. <clears throat> well, I know nothing about farming uh, or about farm animals, and so it was a steep learning curve for me. We got the job done with the help of a, a neighbour and another friend, and Rhea and I became more informed about life on the land. Trying to separate the male lambs in a flock 
from the rest of the sheep, for rank amateurs <clears throat> like myself, was a really tiring job. Now, I came away from that task with a different view about lambs being sweet and gentle <laughs> and cute creatures. They are really quite stupid animals and very tedious. And not just the lambs, but also the rams and the ewes and the weathers. Now, I can see that they probably thought I was just as stupid in trying to round them up. So if you are a lamb lover, then I apologise for my words this morning. But in our Gospel reading this morning from John chapter 1, John the baptizer, on seeing Jesus approaching twice called him the Lamb of God. In verse 29 he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 36 he said, Look, here is the Lamb of God. This terminology used of Jesus appears only here in John's Gospel, even though Jesus is spoken of as simply the Lamb in other places in the Bible, and especially in the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Now, when we think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, like my experience with lambs, we must dismiss any cute, idyllic notion of lambs as being cuddly and sweet and innocent. The testimony of John the baptizer in referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God must be seen in the next clause, which John the baptizer exclaimed, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our sin, in fact. Within the Roman Catholic and the Anglican liturgies, there is an anthem that is often sung or spoken which is called the Agnus Dei, a Latin term meaning in English, Lamb of God. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on me, on us. Jesus, Lamb, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, grant us your peace. Now, the words of the Agnus Dei are, in actual fact, a prayer. While Catholic and Evangelical Christians agree that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there is a difference in the application of these words. For faithful Catholics, the Agnus Dei is a prayer for mercy, pleading for leniency before a righteous judge while not knowing the final outcome. In this sense... The prayer is part of the cycle of sin, confession and penance by which grace is gradually infused according to Catholic theology so that over time the sinner becomes righteous enough for God to be justified in saving them. For evangelicals, however, who trust in Christ for their salvation, the Agnes Day is a prayer in the prayer book which takes on a different significance for evangelical believers. We know that we have already experienced mercy and are at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's achieved for us on the cross. So for us then, the prayer is taking on a tone of thanksgiving as we pray or as we sing the Agnes Day with gratitude for the blessings that we have already received. So in a sense, 
when we pray or sing the Agnes Day, really what we are saying is, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, thank you for your mercy to us. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, thank you for your peace. Well, so much for all of this. What can we glean from the Gospel reading this morning that equips us as we face a new year, 2023? Well, the passage before us this morning, John chapter 1, 29 to 42, has two distinct parts. And so the first part, from verse 29 onwards, John the baptizer's witness to Jesus. Now, I refer to John as the baptizer because I have it on very good authority that John uh, was not a Baptist but was in actual fact an Anglican. <laughs> so whenever we read about this John in the New Testament, his continual message is, hey, it's not about me. John the baptizer was not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophetic figure referred to by Moses in the Old Testament, not even someone worthy enough to untie the sandals of the one who was to come. Again and again, John points away from himself to Jesus and his knowledge of Jesus came by revelation. He witnessed the spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. Now, to modern ears, John's refusal to claim his own importance does not ring true. Today, the need for a healthy self-esteem to promote ourselves, to blow our own horn, <clears throat> is the advice of many sectors of our society. But John testified to Jesus, pointing away from himself to the one who was called the Lamb of God. And verse 29 of uh, this chapter 1 of John's Gospel <clears throat> is the first of two references to that statement, Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, I sense that we are very familiar with that statement, but in a sense it only appears twice in the New Testament, both in this chapter of John chapter 1. So where does it come from? What does it mean? What is the significance for this uh, terminology of Jesus for us here and now? Well, as I said before, when we think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, we must dismiss any cute idyllic notion of lambs being nice and cuddly and sweet. Lambs in biblical times were sacrificial animals, offered up to appease God. There was the sacrificial lamb. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've really got a frog in my throat this morning. There was the Passover sacrifice of Exodus 12, which could be a lamb, but not necessarily. Then there was the lamb referred to in Isaiah 53, when God supplied the lamb in lieu of the sacrifice of Isaac, the only son of Abraham and Sarah. And then there was the daily sacrifice referred to in Exodus 29, which could and was nearly always a lamb which was sacrificed both in the morning and in the evening. Now, whatever <clears throat> lamb sacrifice took place in the Old Testament, for the Palestinian Jew, these offerings were memorials 
or symbols of God's deliverance, signs of God's forgiveness, reminders of messianic salvation. So John, in calling Jesus the Lamb of God, is not so much referring to any specific lamb sacrifice in the Old Testament, but making a general allusion to sacrifice, the means by which God has dealt with our sin. The Lamb of God figure, then, is a composite expression foreshadowing the once and for all perfect sacrifice utterly fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. For Jesus, in his death on the cross, took away our sins, fully dealing with them. Jesus at Calvary bore the consequences of our sin in order that its guilt could be removed. And this guilt was completely removed, carried away. Note that John, the Gospel writer, here talks about sin and not sins. He's referring to the totality of the world's sin rather than just a few individual acts. But of course, the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary has dealt with every harsh word, every evil thought, every selfish act that we have ever committed. Without any exception, every kind of sin and evil is covered. As one person has uh, expressed it, there is no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated that it cannot be taken away by Christ, our Lamb of God. So Jesus takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos, not just the church, just as we see in John 3.16 that God so loved the cosmos, the world. And in John 4.42, the Samaritans recognised Jesus as the saviour of the world, the cosmos, And Jesus himself declared in John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, referring to his crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. So God's mercy and benevolence is extended to everyone, but this does not mean that everyone responds to this love. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish but wanting everyone to come to repentance. This is grace upon grace. We must respond to God's love by repentance and faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the second part of the Gospel reading this morning describes such a response by the first disciples of Jesus. And here in this section, John the Baptizer is seen directing his followers to Jesus. So no jealousy here. Initially it was Andrew and an unnamed disciple that John the Baptizer referred to Jesus as he walked by. Look, here is the Lamb of God. The unnamed disciple was probably John the Beloved, who is the author of uh, the Gospel. So based on hearing the testimony of another person, John the Baptizer's disciples then follow Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now I think it's worth noting here uh, to reflect on the cost for John the Baptizer in directing his disciples to follow Jesus. He would have lost a very loyal and gifted follower 
in Andrew. And this gives real meaning to what Christian discipleship involves. A true disciple is committed to taking up their own cross and following Jesus. This is a complete and total commitment. And so in our discipleship, we are to live as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back again tomorrow. John showed all the marks of discipleship, loyalty to Jesus as he declared, uh, and I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He showed commitment to Jesus in declaring his allegiance, behold the Lamb of God. He showed love for Jesus in declaring uh, his uh, allegiance. He showed obedience to Jesus in deliberately encouraging his followers to no longer follow him but to follow uh, Jesus and he showed fruitfulness for Jesus as we see in the second half of our reading Andrew in turn sought his brother Simon and later on we read that Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus. So here in John the baptizer we have an influencer to use modern parlance who was prepared to live by the message that he proclaimed. And at a time now when public trust in Christian leaders is very low, the world is in desperate need of preachers, Christian leaders who are prepared to surrender their personal ambition and popularity and to do this out of a consuming concern for Jesus' preeminence and the advance of the gospel by whatever means. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century German philosopher, was known for his claim that God is a fiction created by human beings. Well, he once challenged the Christians of his day by saying, show me you are redeemed and I will believe in your redeemer. Now, this challenge is equally applicable to us today, for our Christian lifestyle should bear witness to our love for and our commitment to Jesus as the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin. Andrew's reaction to finding Jesus provides us with the classic model of winning people over to Christ. It is primarily relational. Obviously, we need to know what to say about our faith and why we believe, but also we need to to know how to point people to Jesus, giving the hope that lies within us in a way that is appropriate and relevant and caring. So with this in mind, let me uh, conclude now by referring to a movie. Some of you have probably seen that uh, film, Saving Private Ryan. Anyone seen it? Okay, Um, It was released in 1998, uh, but it's been screened on TV several times. In this film, a group of soldiers all give their lives to rescue a young soldier caught behind enemy lines. And this soldier was called Ryan and played by Matt Damon. The leader of the group of soldiers that gave their lives to rescue Ryan is played by Tom Hanks. And as he lies dying, he tells Ryan to earn this, meaning you had better 
make the most of your rescue. He wanted to, he wanted to feel that Ryan would be worthy of his sacrifice, the sacrifice that was made on his behalf. Now, the film shifts many years into the future to a scene in a military cemetery where Ryan, now mature and with his family, stands before the grave of his rescuer. And Ryan, in the movie, asks his wife if he has been a good man, for he wants to be reassured at this point in his life that he's been worthy of what has been done for him. It's a very poignant moment in the film. Just as in our reading this morning, when John the baptizer exclaims twice about Jesus, is also a poignant moment. Behold, the Lamb of God. God's love is so great that Jesus Jesus died for us as sinners, the worthy for the unworthy. And here in the sacrifice of Jesus is something truly amazing, just as John Newton expresses in that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. This amazing grace, John also encapsulates in that explanation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us not forget that it is our sins that Jesus as the Lamb of God has taken away. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you that we are your children by grace. Help us to comprehend your grace more and more and by your spirit motivate us and equip us to share your grace with others. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name.